Galatians chapter 3, if you're not already there in your, in your Bible, we'll be looking at the verses um, that George read for us this morning. As I um, look in the back this morning, there's, um, we have a, someone else in a familiar rocker. Um, we look back and it was a place where Robin sat almost every Sunday when she was here, would sit, sit in that rocker and she went home to be with the Lord this week, and we missed Robin. Uh, some some of you may not know she she suffered greatly in in her life with uh, illnesses and and pain, and and we rejoice with her as the song goes. No no more night, no more pain, uh, no more tears, never crying again. And praises to the great I am. We will live in the light of the risen. Is living in the light of the risen land. So though we mourn, we rejoice that her suffering in the last days was short and she went peacefully uh, to be with the Lord. I do hope that you will, if you're even visiting with us this morning, that you will stick around uh, for the pizza party with the Zelmers uh, after the service. We're going to have about uh, probably 45 minutes or so with them, maybe um, somewhere around there where we will just sit and enjoy some pizza and, and you will hear what uh, the Lord is doing in a part of the world that we know little, if anything, about. Uh, Kosovo, a, a, a Muslim country, um, a country that uh, needs the Lord. And uh, we have uh, two faithful servants with us who have spent many Years I've known uh, Keith and Pam for a number of years, probably a couple of decades, um, and uh, it's a thrill to have them with us this morning. So I hope you'll stick around uh, for that. You will, you will be blessed. We are walking through Paul's letter uh, to the Galatians. We are in chapter 3. Uh, we have learned a number of things about Galatians. We've learned that it's really kind of separated into three major sections, uh, Galatians 1 and 2, Paul establishes his authority to speak on the subject that he's going to speak on. Uh, he um, counters some of the arguments that were posed against him. There are some uh, Judaizers, Jewish missionaries, who are seem to be following him around uh, preaching a gospel that is not the gospel that Paul preaches. So in chapters 1 and 2, he establishes his authority in chapters 3 and 4, where we currently are, he expounds the gospel. Um, he presents in some detail the true gospel, the gospel of uh, grace by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. He's going to come to chapters 5 and 6, where he's going to exhort us to live out that gospel. It is a gospel that we live by walking in the Spirit. And so he's going to tell us that promise, the promise of Abraham, trumps the law. And if that is true, then we are to live by the Spirit because we live not in the present evil age, although that continues. We, in, we live in, in the age of, of the Spirit. And if we do, then we need to walk by the Spirit. We need to walk under the conviction of the Spirit. We need to produce in our lives the fruit of of the spirit so that's where we're heading we've been in chapter 3 verses 1 through 14 for the last couple of weeks and we saw in those verses that paul 
he really pulls no punches. Um, he doesn't hold back uh, for what he needs to tell them because this is truly a matter of, of life and death. Uh, if the Judaizers win, if their gospel of, of faith plus works wins, then the true gospel fails. The plan of God fails. And we are still lost in our sin and under the condemnation and the wrath of God. So he begins in chapter 3 and in verse 1 with some strong words, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? you actually using the words of, of being uh, under witchcraft. He uses some strong emotion. And he says, it was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. You know this. And if you know this, you know the purpose he was crucified. For what purpose was he crucified? And by the end of, of that section in verse 14, 13, and 14, he implies that the law, which these um, Judaizers are preaching, is responsible in some way for the cursing of the Messiah. That the Messiah, Jesus, was crucified to redeem those who deserve to be cursed. And the law brings that curse. And in chapter, um, chapter 3, verse 13, he says, uh, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. The law brings a curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit by faith not by works of law. So in chapters 3 and 4, Paul's answered one question. And that one question we find in chapter 3, verse 2. He says, let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Were you saved by, re by works along with faith, or were you simply saved by faith in Jesus Christ alone? And that is the crux of, of the letter of Galatians. And he proves this in a number of ways. We saw this in, in chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. He, he makes an argument from their personal experience. In, in verse, uh, verse 3, he says, Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? In other words, how did you, how did you receive the Spirit. Did you receive it by obeying the law? And the answer was no, because you didn't really, you didn't even know about the law. The law was not there when I preached the gospel to you. He goes on, and he says in in uh, verses six through fourteen, he gives a, an argument from Abraham. He goes back to the Old Testament. He says, "This was your experience. Now this is what Scripture says." And in verse six, he he quotes. Be, um, just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Uh, Genesis 12, 3. And he quotes uh, Genesis 15, uh, verse 6. And he goes on in the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preach the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. Genesis 15, 6. And he goes on and he uses Habakkuk 2, 4 and Leviticus 18.5 and Deuteronomy 21.23. And he uses all of the 
these uh, verses in all of the Old Testament to say this is, this is the true way of salvation. It's not faith plus you doing something to earn God's favor. It's simply by faith. Then, or now, he's going to make another argument. And he's going to use a mundane example that everyone would know. And he's going to use that example to come to a conclusion after that. And he's going to answer a question that's now in everybody's mind. He's, he's in their eyes, criticizing the law. That promise is above the law. Promise trumps law. Well, what exactly is the purpose of the law? And in verses 19 through 23, he's going to tell us the purpose of the law. So what's his goal in all of this? And this is what we need to, to keep in mind as we're looking at these verses. His goal is this. The reason justification by faith alone is God's first and only way of salvation is because a correct reading of Scripture proves it. He has given them an example from their, from their own experience. He has used the Old Testament, and now in these verses, he's going to give them, give them um, the right way to read Scripture. He's going to say the Judaizers are reading Scripture wrong, and I want to show you what is the proper way to read Scripture. Paul has built his case in chapter 3, verse 7. He says, know this, that it is those of faith who are sons, who are the sons of Abraham. So how do we read the Bible in order to understand that it is those of faith, not of works, who are the sons of Abraham? That is what he's going to, to do in these verses that we uh, we'll look at today. So what is he combating? How would the Jews have read Scripture? I think what Paul is going to, to say to them is that you read Scripture this way. There's a promise that was given to Abraham. That promise was fulfilled in Christ, in Jesus Christ. So you read Christ through the covenant that God made through Abraham. And we're going to see how all of that works. But the Jews, they would have said, okay, okay, Abraham, we, we believed. We believed in Jesus Christ. We believe Galatians 3.6 and Genesis 15.6. Abraham uh, and his descendants believed. Those who believed in what was to Abraham, those were the ones who were justified. We believe that. But we also know that Abraham and his descendants were circumcised. And we also know that later, later, God added something to that. We know that they said, that God said to Abraham, because he obeyed me and did everything I required of him, keeping my commandments, my degrees, and my instructions that I gave them the land. We know that Genesis 26, 5 says that. And anyone, if anyone was a keeper of the law, was obedient to the commands of God, it was Abraham. 
And Abraham was a convert to Judaism, just like the Gentiles. There was no, it's a little bit hard to argue that because there was no Judaism before Abraham. So that argument is a, a little bit skewed. But they would have said he's just like the Gentiles. He didn't know anything about Judaism. So like Abraham, they also should follow up on their faith by being circumcised and obey the law. They should become Jewish to be God's people. So Paul begins with an explanation of how to read the Bible. And he begins it with a change of tone. Notice this in verse, we get in verse 15. To give a human example, brothers, or we could say brothers and sisters. We contrast that to chapter 3, verse 1, the beginning. Who has, who has, oh, you foolish who has bewitched you he's now tampering that back a bit and he'll continue that through throughout the rest of Galatians in chapter 4 verse 12 he says brothers I entreat you become become as I am in chapter 4 verse uh, 31 he says so brothers and sisters we are not children of slave but of free woman in in 6 1 he says again brothers so he's beginning to to reason with them as brothers, not as those foolish Galatians. Paul, I think, is thinking, I've made my point. Now I need to, I need to bring them in gently into what I'm saying. So be, he begins with brothers. Brothers, let's think about something together. I want to use an example that everyone's going to understand to explain what we're talking about. A mundane example. Perhaps he's using this because the arguments were from Scripture, from the Old Testament for the Galatians. You know, they didn't have the Old Testament, he, and everything they're learning is new, and perhaps, perhaps that was geared a little bit more toward the Judaizers even. So now he's given an example that everyone will know. He's using a man-made covenant. The problem is we don't know. We don't know what he's talking about here. We don't know what kind of, of document Paul is talking about here uh, because we don't really have a document that uh, is one-sided that uh, promises something to everyone and it's legal and binding and can never change. But they knew. They knew what this document is. And pretty, uh, I think pretty much the closest thing we would have to this would, would be a will. But we think, you know, a will can be changed. Well, um, maybe a will when the... Uh, the guy who makes the will is dead. It can no, no longer be changed. We don't know what this document it is, whether it was a Hebrew document or a Roman document or, or a Greek document, whatever it was, they knew. This is a mundane example, and there is a document, we could say a will, uh, a, you know, a testament, um, a covenant. It's simply a contract. There is some sort of contract that he is going to say once it is done, it cannot be changed. Paul's point, though, whatever this document is, his main point is in, in verse 17. Verse 17, he says this. This is what I mean. This document, this is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterwards, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. 
that does not happen. That once God has initiated a covenant, man cannot do anything to avoid it. And God did ratify this covenant, didn't he? Remember in Genesis 15, let me just uh, very quickly show you that. In Genesis chapter 15, it talks about God's covenant with Abraham, and, and he talks about how he will give him an heir, and, and, and then uh, it talks about, um, I will give you the land. And in verse 8, um, in verse eight Abraham says, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? And he has them cut into uh, a bunch of animals. And in the Old Testament, when there was a contract, both parties would walk through that as a, as a testament that this is what I am agreeing to. Well, what happens with this? In verse 17, the sun goes down. It was dark. Behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram. But Abraham didn't walk through there, did he? No, this was a covenant made by God. And he says, the law came into the picture 430 years after this. It does not set aside the promises. A later document cannot set aside a will or make it powerless or, or destroy it. The promises remain. The promise is activated by faith and faith alone, there is no law, there was no law. So the first reason Paul is saying that, that promise trumps law is that promise is superior. And that's what we're looking at really in, in 15 through 18. The, the promise is superior to the law, and we're going we're to see that. He says this contract, this testament, this will is irrevocable. Only God could revoke this if he, if he wanted to, and he says he won't do that. It is irrevocable, and by being irrevocable, it is eternal. It is everlasting. Now we skip verse 16. Verse 16 is, is one of those verses that, um, quite frankly, is difficult. Difficult to understand. I think it's, the main point is, is, is pretty simple to understand, but, but Paul's argument gets a little complex. In verse 16, it, it's really a parenthesis, or it's really adding some information. But the main point of verse 16, in verse 16, now the promises were made to Abraham and his offspring, it does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. A little, little complicated, but his main point is this. God made a covenant with Abraham. And the heir of that covenant is Christ. He is the heir of the covenant that came with Abraham. He was a Jew, so he's physically related to Abraham. He, he was a man of faith, but he is the heir. Why? And I think it's this, because the death and the resurrection of Christ did what? It paid for our sins. He says it is finished. It is paid in full. He through his death and resurrection, we could say he bought the blessings of Abraham for us. That is the only way to become an heir of Abraham. The only way to, to be a seed of the promise is by being united with Jesus Christ. 
verse 29 of chapter 3 will say that. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs of the promise. That is the only way because Christ, Christ is the heir of the promise of Abraham. Now, he uses the, a singular seed. Seed is one of those words, you know, it's, it's kind of like fish. If you're going fishing, you ask a guy how many fish you'd catch. They'd catch, I caught one fish. Another guy says, I caught five fish. They both say fish. Seed is one of those words. So, so how does Paul here use seed as a singular when, when really it looks like in the, in the covenant you'll have many seed. There, there will be lots of seeds. But he says seed is one. How does he do that? Well, I think, I think he, he shows us that in Romans, um, Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9, he quotes Genesis 21, 12. Genesis 21, 12 is a verse that uses the word seed to refer to one man, to refer to Isaac, to highlight him. It was not Ishmael that was the seed of Abraham. It was Isaac. And out of Isaac came lots of seed, many seeds. But in Romans 9, verse 7, he says this, and not to all children of Abraham, because they are, off, they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. So your, your seed, literally, offspring is the word seed. So seed, one person. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring, as seeds. So he's using this word interchangeably, and he's saying this, that if you, if you understand that Christ is the seed, and you look at other scripture that tells you there is a promised Messiah, and that the Messiah is the heir of the promise, then you will understand that Jesus is the seed singular in a unique way, that Jesus is the seed in a special way, and if you want to be justified with God, there is only one way to be justified, and that's to have faith in the seed, faith in the heir of the promise. And I think verse 18 helps us, helps us to see that um, a, little, a little clearer. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. What he what he. What that should say is, and, and what, how we should read that is, for if the inheritance comes by the law, which it didn't, it no longer would have come by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. What is he saying? He introduces here the idea of inheritance. That in the Old, Old Testament, inheritance was usually the land. They would inherit the land. But for Paul inheritance is Christ himself and the blessings that he brings, the blessings of justification, the blessings of the spirit that come. And he says, God gave it to him. And we read that and we could read right over that, but that is a word that says, God graciously gave this to him. It is a, it is a word that expresses the grace of God that he gave this promise without merit. He didn't deserve it. He didn't do anything to earn it. He gave it 
to Abraham by his grace. It is a promise. What is a promise? If I give you a promise, I am, I'm not coerced in my decision to promise you something. And I don't put stipulations on you to receive the promise. But the law demands work. Romans chapter 4. Um, Paul says this, almost, almost those very words in chapter 4, verse 4. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. He's saying you cannot earn this. Salvation is always God's initiative. Salvation is always by God's grace. And verse 16 shows us that, that what was given, what was graciously given uh, in verse 18 is Christ. If by the law, then Christ is not needed. But if by grace, then Christ is needed. Christ is the promise. He says basically the same thing in chapter 2, verse, verse 21. When he says this, I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. So what is he saying in these verses? He's saying this. God made a contract just like men do. A contract that does not change. God made it with Abraham and Abraham's offspring. Salvation would come only to those who live by faith. If there's no Christ, there's no inheritance. No later document can annul that. Or do away with it. So a law that comes 430 years later, God is not adding works to faith. That's a wrong way to read scripture. Salvation is an inheritance. Christ is the promise that is and always will be the way to justification. That is always the way to a right relationship with God. So promise is superior to law. Why? Because God gave the covenant. And when God gives the covenant, it's unconditional. And when God gave the covenant, it is eternal. It does not change and it cannot be annulled. The law is not superior to the promise, but the promise is superior to the law. You know, I... I was um, looking at this uh, the other day, or maybe it was even yesterday, and I'm thinking, you know, I'm preaching to the choir here because we all, we all believe that. And I, I thought, well, do we all believe that? And I, I looked up something. I Googled something. I said, how many, um, how many Christians believe that salvation is by faith plus works? And, of course, Barna, George Barna, he's got answers to everything. <laughs> he says this, With American adults increasingly rejecting biblical answers to key questions of life, from the meaning and purpose to understand the intrinsic value of human life to the existence of the objective truth, 
It is little surprise that the current view of sin and salvation are increasingly void of biblical understanding. And then he says this, most surprisingly, the latest finding, the and this was in 2020, is that a majority of people who describe themselves as Christian, 52% accept a works-oriented means of God's acceptance. More shockingly, huge proportions of people associated with church whose official doctrine says eternal salvation comes from embracing Christ as Savior, believe that a person can qualify for heaven and be, by being or doing good. That includes, that includes 46% of Pentecostals, 44% of mainline Protestants, 41% of evangelical Christians believe that you can earn your way to heaven. That's staggering. I read that and I thought, man, we had to preach this. This wasn't just important for Paul in Galatians. This is important today because Paul would say that's anathema. Let those 44%, that 41% be a curse because they are under God's curse. And perhaps we even do that by living we just think, for some reason, we need to earn God's favor from walking down the aisle, saying, I did that. To reading my Bible every day, I did that. God's going to love me more. Anything that I do to earn God's favor is living, living by works. This is so crucial to the church today. But I need to go on. Secondly, the law is inferior to the promise. Not only is the promise superior to the law, but the law is inferior to the promise in verses 12 through 22. I think Paul feels like I've proven myself to, uh, at least I've convinced myself, and I think I've convinced the, the Galatians that salvation is by faith alone. But what about the Judaizers? They'd spent all of their life under the law, trying to obey the law, and now Paul's saying, you don't need it. No, it's not, it's not how you get to God. You might have it for other purposes, but what is the purpose of the law? That's the question Paul now answers. In verses 19 through 20, he gives God's true purpose of the law. And there are three points that, that he makes in verses 19 and 20. Let me just read that. Um, why then the law? I've said all these things about the law. What's the law for? It was added because of transgressions, one, until the, until the offspring should come to whom it was promised, Christ, that's two. And it was put in place through the angels by an intermediary, that's three. Well, two of those three, I think we're, we can, we'll, we'll see we're uh, pretty logical. The, the mediator is a little bit uh, more difficult. But what is he saying? First of all, he's saying the law was not given to man to be saved. He says that in the following verses. The law was given to man for what? For transgressions. To reveal sin. Because of transgressions. Or, or we could say to reveal transgressions. What does that mean? Well, um, think of it this way. The chicken or the egg. Which came first? Uh, for Paul, it would be which came first? Sin or the law? Did God give the law because people were sinning? Or did people suddenly learn 
they were sinning because God gave, gave the law. Uh, and I, I think there's a, a good case for perhaps both of those. Let me just give you a couple of verses uh, in Romans chapter 5, verse, verse 20. He says this, So that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ the Lord. Sin reigned in death. Sin, the, the law was given to increase trespasses, to increase sin. In, in chapter 4 of Romans, verse 15, he says this, For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. So if you don't have the law, there's no transgression. There's sin. All transgression is sin, but not all sin is transgression. Trans transgression is is knowing the law and choosing to sin anyway. And the law came to increase that, to show sin. So what do we have so far? Abraham. The promise to Abraham. What did Israel do? They 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 just rejected God. They sinned. You look at their look at their history. Israel's bad behavior. God sends the law. Boom, an explosion of an acknowledgement, an explosion of sin in Israel. The law did not come to bring salvation. The law came to show the wrath on man, to show the sinfulness of man. If you want to see your sinfulness, Hold the Bible up in front of you and read it. And we will be convicted of our sin. Secondly, it says it's temporary. It came until the promise. The promise, or, or it came, yeah, until Christ. The law is temporary. It goes from Moses to Christ. It's, it's to show the sin of Israel. It was given through a mediator. What does that mean? Well, I don't know. F.F. Uh, Bruce says there are 300 interpretations of this. I think it might be something like this. There was an assumption that a document between two parties is better than a document that has mediators between those two parties. And the law had God and angels and Moses and the people. Abrahamic covenant had God and Abraham. So the best I can do is say that's a more direct line to Abraham than it was through Moses and angels to people. If it means something else, I have no idea what that means. But Paul thought it was important, and they understood it. And what is the point? Well, in verses 20, 21 and 22, I think we see the main point. The main point is this. He answers another rhetorical question. Um, he says, the law came to increase transgressions, to, to expose transgressions until Christ comes. It's better because there's no intermediary. So if the law, then contrary to the promises, how does the law fit with the promises? He says, certainly not. For if the law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. That's his point. That is Paul's main point. The law is not contrary to the promise because the law was never meant to be or to do what the promises do. That was never the purpose of the law. You want proof? 
look at Israel's history. They were the people of God. God chose them. God took them out of Egypt. Then God gave them the law. And what did they do? God fed them. He, he continued to feed them. He continued to lead them. He gave them the land. He set, he set judges over them. He gave them a king when they asked, even though they shouldn't have asked for the king. What did they do? They rejected him. And so if Israel, God's people, are not saved by the law, how are we ever going to be saved by the law? They rebelled. They went into exile. The entire nation sinned, except a small remnant. In the New Testament, at the end of in the New Testament, there are like 120 people who are following Jesus at that time. One commentator said this, the purpose of the law is not to cure sin, but to curse sinners. That is the purpose of the law. And verse 22 says, the law cannot save, but it does something else. What does it say? It imprisons so that the promise might be given to those who believe. That the law through which the Jews should have come to know Christ by faith damned them to hell with the exception of a very few who believe by faith. So the promise trumps law. Promise is superior to law. That's good news. Uh, the promise is initiated by God. It's unconditional. It's irrevocable. It is everlasting. It is graciously given, undeserved. God made promises to Abraham. He's a seed. The last thing I want to show you is, is what I think uh, may have been Paul's conclusion if he had needed this to prove his argument. But promises were made of blessing to Abraham. Christ was the seed of that. But that was not all he, he did. He gave promises to David as well. Remember 2 Samuel chapter 7, the Davidic covenant? Let me just show you a couple things here. He says, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body. I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his king, kingdom forever. And your house and your kingdom shall be made forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Notice all the eyes. I will do this. God says, I will do this. I will do this. This is something that I will do. Christ was the answer to that covenant as well. Christ was the seed. In 2 Samuel, Christ is the king. The prophets in Jeremiah and in, in Ezekiel, let me just read you one one verse, Ezekiel 31, verses 31, start at verse 31, it says this, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant. So you've got Abraham, you've got David, you've got a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on that day when they, when 
I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, not like the Mosaic covenant. For this covenant that I will make with the house of Israel in those days, declares the Lord, I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. No longer shall each one te uh, teach his neighbor and his brother saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquities. I will remember their sin no more. You see the pattern? Paul's saying, this is, this is how you read scripture. Salvation has always been by grace through faith in Christ alone. In, John, in 2 Corinthians, George, I think, um, either prayed this verse, quoted it, I heard it this morning. But in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20, says this, for all the promises of God find their yes in him. The promises to, to Abraham, the promises to David, the promises to the prophets, they are all fulfilled in Christ. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to the glory, to God for his glory. It is because of the promises that we say, Praise God from whom all blessings flow. It's because of the promises that we say, I'm standing on the promises of Christ my Savior. He's the seed. He's the son of David. He ratified the new covenant. He said, this is the blood, my blood of the new covenant. He gave his blood to ratify that covenant. Through him is our amen to the glory of God. R.C. Sproul said uh, this. He said, Faith involves trusting in the future promises of God and waiting for their fulfillment. I think we could remove one word there. Faith involves trusting in the promises of God. Past present and future, and waiting for their fulfillment. I close with this in Acts chapter 13. Acts chapter 13, Paul and Barnabas are in Antioch. In verse 32, he says this, And we bring you the good news that what God promised to our fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, this he has fulfilled to us uh, to us their children by raising Jesus as also it is written in the second psalm you are my son today I have begotten you and as for the fact that he raised him from the dead no more to return to corruption he has spoken in this way I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David he says also in another psalm you will not let your holy one see corruption for David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed. 
from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Salvation is by grace through faith. How do we respond to this? I think there are only two things. We look at the law and we look at the teachings of Christ and we look at James and James says, this is a mirror for us. And we hold the mirror up and we see what the law has exposed. We see the sinfulness and we see our sin and, and, and we see that our sins have turned into transgressions. And so we, our first response, I believe, is to repent. Even if you're a believer and you've trusted in Christ to keep short accounts of sin and confession before God. And if you don't know Christ as your Savior, today could be that day of salvation. It begins with repentance. The law exposes our sin. The scripture, the, the teachings of Jesus, and we see how we failed. It begins with confession. But then I think it ends with gratitude and praise for the grace of God through his promises throughout scripture. And we look at those and we say, I'm standing on those promises because that is my hope. That is what I have. I have the grace of God through faith that I'm justified before God and have the hope of eternal life with him.